Well, thank you for being here today and for praying for me as we conclude the study of Malachi. Uh, I trust you've benefited from this. I, uh, I know I've really gained a lot better understanding of this last book of the Old Testament. By way of introduction, I think you've been able to see the heavy disputes going on between the people and God as we looked at the first three chapters. And now as we come to chapter 4, Michael read earlier, we'll see a final aspect, that being God's judgment. I don't know what you think about when you consider God's judgment, but for most people, final judgment is not a subject that they speak of frequently, probably because it's related to death, and most people don't like to talk about death. So it becomes a subject, as they say, out of sight, out of mind, as most do not think about it. And yet it's a very serious subject that we very much need to consider. Ken asked a couple of weeks ago in his message, do you fear God? No doubt we, we live in a day and age where very few do in fact fear God. The, the God, the little g of most Americans is a feeble, tolerant, little old man who would never send anyone except the very, very worst to hell. This American God, in essence, grades on a curve. And it's a lenient curve, to say the least, for unless you're a terrorist or a mass murderer, you have nothing to fear come judgment day. But sadly, this no-fear attitude often shows up in funerals. Over the years of my life, I've attended funerals for many people who are definitely not Christians. And yet those presiding over the service tell of all the good things this person did throughout their lifetime, overlooking the bad or maybe saying something a little negative like he or she had a few rough edges. And then those words that are often shared as a means of comfort to family and friends, he or she is in a much better place now. How confusing or misleading. For if you're sitting in the audience and aren't a believer, instead of being convicted of not knowing the Lord, you are instead comforted thinking, I'm okay, because I'm not as bad as he was. Such is the popular theology of our day. If you're a good person, it doesn't really matter what you believe about God or Jesus Christ. And don't worry about your sins, because God is love, and he understands, and he'll overlook those faults. And based on that thinking, it will be almost certain that the majority of all of us will be together in heaven, despite our shortcomings. Right? Wrong. Nothing could be further from the truth. It reminded me of a story of a failing student. A ninth grade civics teacher had to issue one student an F. The boy reacted as though the teacher had caught him by surprise by asking, How come? How come you gave me an F? To which the teacher responded, You didn't pass a single test? You never turned in one homework assignment? You refused to participate in any classroom work, and I warned you more than once that you would not pass. The boy stood there in silence for a moment and then exclaimed, And you mean you flunked me for that? Spurgeon tells the story like this. A man goes into an inn, and as soon as he sits down, he begins to order both his dinner and his room for the night. Indeed, he stays at the inn for several nights, and then checking out, the bill comes due. 
and it takes him by surprise. Why, I never thought of paying for all this. Whereby the landlord of the inn thinks to himself, here is a man who is either born a fool or else a thief to assume there would never be a reckoning. Spurgeon goes on to say that this is how many people live, enjoying life, living day to day, with hardly ever a thought about the coming day of reckoning that the Lord describes in Hebrews 9.27. And it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Judgment. That's why Malachi 4 is so important for the people of Malachi's day as it is for our own. So many have forgotten or taken serious the reality of God's promises about his judgment. Humanly speaking, it's not uncommon for people to not keep their promises. Even as a Christian, you may have broken a promise at one time or another. Oh, I, I promise to call you next week, and then you never do. Oh, I promise to return that drill gun I borrowed from you by next Monday, but you never do. Or man, oh, I promise, honey, I'll fix that broken cabinet, and you never do. People break their promises every day, even Christians. Yet God always keeps his promises. And one promise that he gives us today is that this future day of judgment is coming, rest assured. Whereas 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So consider these two promises from God's word regarding judgment. For the unbeliever, Matthew 11:24. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Now compare that to the believer. John 5:24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And then this sentence, and shall not come into condemnation or judgment but is passed from death into life. That is our opening promise in this first verse this morning. For behold, the day cometh, the day is coming. And so that's how I titled my message. Behold, the day of judgment is coming. So let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for the seriousness of this section of scripture. Lord, I, I pray that there would not be a one person here who would not realize that your promises, particularly your promise on the day of judgment, will come. Lord, I thank you for what you taught me. I pray and I in turn can share the truth in a way that people can understand and more importantly apply it in their lives. So thank you for this time here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So, children, you may be thinking, six verses, short message. Mm. I told Tom Ling, or I'll tell Tom Ling, he's got a two o'clock plane. I'll try to get you there, Tom. I'll try to get you there. But No, I broke this up into four sections. So the first one is just verse one. So follow along in your Bibles as I read. For behold, the day cometh, that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud day, all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts. 
that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. A promise of judgment. In this initial promise from the Lord, we immediately see the word behold. A word in the Hebrew that defines itself as look, see, notice. Pay careful attention to what is to follow, for it is very, very important. And then the words, the day cometh, which is repeated later again in the verse. What is this day? Malachi is referring to the day of judgment or great tribulation when Christ shall return to judge all people. Now by way of a little context, here are a few thoughts on this coming day from the book of Isaiah the prophet as he spoke about the destruction of Babylon in Isaiah 13. But as my Bible says in the footnotes, it is a picture of what the day of the Lord will be like when Christ comes the second time. So if you could do that turn over in your Bibles or back to Isaiah 13, I'm going to read some verses that will describe this day of the Lord. First, it will be a day of dread. Isaiah 13, verse 6 through verse 8. How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed at one another. Their faces shall be as flames. A day of dread. Verse 9, it will be a day of destruction. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. It will be a day of darkness. Verse 10, for the stars of the heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in its going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And lastly, it will be a day of distress. Verse 11, And I will punish the world with their, for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Matthew Henry said this about the day of the Lord, and I quote, The day of the Lord will indeed be terrible with wrath and fierce anger, far beyond what is stated. Nor will there be any place for the sinner to flee to or attempt and escape. Yet few act as though they believe these things. Unquote. It's hard for our human finite minds to really grasp what this day of judgment will be like. So Malachi uses a vivid description of fire to help us see this devastation. Terminology like burning as an oven or burn them up or leave them neither root nor branch. It's this analogy of fire that hopefully helps us to understand what this destruction will really, really be like. For if you set a brush pile on fire and let it all burn, all that's left is the ashes. It disintegrates into nothing. Isaiah 5.24, Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossoms shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Who is it that will be engulfed in these burning flames? From verse 1 we see it will be the proud, all that do wickedly. These are the ones who will be judged and reduced to stubble. It is the very people 
who truly need to understand this coming day of judgment that are often the ones that reject this promise and even scoff at it. As Second Peter 3 talks, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers or mockers, walking after their own lust, proud, and saying, where is this promise of his coming? And why do these proud individuals refute the day of judgment? What is the root of their arrogancy? I think it boils down to a sense of of self-importance, self-reliance, self-centeredness, self-conceit, even to include defiance and rebelliousness. These prideful are the people who think they're good enough in themselves. They don't even believe there's life after death. Thus, in essence, they are deceived by their own arrogancy. A man named J. Oswald Chambers wrote this, Nothing is more distasteful to God than self-conceit. The first and fundamental sin, in essence, aims at enthroning self at the expense of God. So the question really comes before us is, where, where do you stand? Are you one relying on your own strength, your own self-sufficiency? your own works and not the work of Christ to get into heaven and avoid this judgment. Pride, it's a, it's a sin we all deal with. And particularly I'd say men especially deal with pride. And the book of Proverbs is filled with verses on pride. Proverbs 11.2 When pride cometh, then cometh shame, but with the lowly is wisdom. Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though hand join in hand, he shall not be unpunished. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. Yet so often we justify this means of pride or we're so blinded to it we don't even see it. So are you prideful? few thoughts, a few questions if, if pride reigns in your heart. One, do you already assume you know something when someone is teaching? Are you too proud to ask for help? Men, this is especially important for us. Are you too proud to ask for help? Do you talk a lot about yourself in your conversations? Is it you? Do you ever think you're better than others? Are you able to receive constructive criticism? Here's a good one. Are you overly obsessed with your physical appearance? Promise number one. Judgment is coming. Verses two and three. Follow along as I read these. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. I call this section a promise of blessing. If there was ever a contrast between what happens to the wicked on the day of judgment as compared to the righteous in Christ, we find it here in verse 2. 
Unto those that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. The Amplified Bible puts it like this, But you, for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. Revering God's name. What does that mean? It, it means to hold it in high esteem, high honor. It means to live your life in such a way that brings glory to God's name in, in everything you do. Not just on Sundays, in everything you do. Psalms 86, 11-13 Teach me thy way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Have a reverential awe for thy name. I will praise thee, O Lord, my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forevermore. For great is thy mercy towards me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. Most commentators describe this promise of blessing as the dawn of a new day, where the sun of righteousness rises with healing in his wings. It's not hard at all to see the sun representing the son of Jesus Christ. And it is in his righteousness, justified by the blood of Christ, that will bring healing of peace and joy. Certainly the darkness of wickedness and sin brings spiritual sickness and death to the human race, yet the warm rays of the Son of Righteousness bring restoration and healing. The description of the righteous goes on in these verses to depict it as calves growing fat and jumping in their stalls, trampling the ashes of the wicked whom God has judged. If you try to picture this in your mind, it is not a pretty sight for the wicked come judgment day. So by way of application, we've seen in these first three verses two promises. A promise of judgment and a promise of blessing. In essence, there are really only two roads to pursue. One leads to destruction. One leads to eternal life. Which road are you on? Don't be one who's relying on your own works only to end up in the fiery furnace of hell. Don't keep saying to yourself, what's it tomorrow? Tomorrow I'll seek the Lord for it may be too late. As one author describes it, there are many who have the idea that they can live any way they want and repent at the 11th hour. The problem is they intend to repent at the 11th hour and die at 10.30. Which leads me to the third section, verse 4. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. I called this third section a promise of standards. You've heard it said of all those good guy, bad guy stories. In the end, the good guys win and the bad guys get burned. Such is what we've seen here thus far. God promises to judge the wicked and bless the righteous. In this next verse, Malachi explains that God's law is the standard of his judgment. And towards this end, he points back to the specific event in history when God gave Israel his law through Moses at Mount Sinai. God's law was not just a matter of personal taste or popular opinion or majority vote. Instead, his law was a revelation about God's own holiness and the holiness he expected from his people. And he instructs us here in this verse, remember God's statutes and judgments. In other words, keep my commandments, for these are the standards in which you are to live your life. 
Again from Proverbs 7. My son, keep my words and lay or treasure up my commandments to thee. Keep my commandments and live and my law is the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers. Write them upon the table of thy heart. And then from 1 John 5, 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous or burdensome. Now, some of you may be thinking, the law isn't relevant. For we live in the age of grace. Why? Ephesians 2. It says, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And you are very, very correct in your assessment. Works never save anyone, but it's faith in Christ alone. Yet going on in Ephesians 2, verse 10, which we often don't read, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. While good works absolutely do not save you, once you are converted, good works absolutely become an outward expression of our obedience to God and our love for Him. And how do we know what good works we're to pursue? It's the promises that God gives us in His Word. As I was studying this, I don't know why my mind flashed back to college. When I was in college, about 1976, no, it was 1975, um, I just graduated. I was a very new believer in Christ. And a book came out written by Francis Schaeffer. You won't, most of you don't know who he is. But he wrote, he was a Christian pastor, and the title of the book was, How Should We Then Live?, his book was basically saying that there is a flow to history and culture and as a Christian the humanistic movement is ramping up and as so we must be on guard as to how we should live. Al Mohler, historical theologian, affirmed Schaefer and went on to say people have presuppositions and they will live more consistently on the basis of those presuppositions than even they themselves may realize. Schaefer was talking this way when most evangelicals were unaware of the storm of worldviews that was coming. He perceived the presuppositions of the looming humanistic and secular worldview as showing up first in art and high culture. He was right. While most evangelicals were watching Gunsmoke and taking their kids to the newly opened Walt Disney World, Schaefer was listening and watching as a new worldview was taking hold of the larger culture. And sadly, this new worldview is marching forward by leaps and bounds, unquote. 1975-2022. It's unbelievable what has happened or transpired in that short time. And it just keeps declining. So how should we then live? What is our guide in this declining environment? Now more than ever, more than ever, it's the Bible. Let me ask you a question. Can you truly be a Christian without reading the Bible? Sports fans read sports magazines. Political-minded people read political news. Economists read the latest market indicators. 
Carpenters read blueprints. Doctors read medical journals. Yet there are millions of people in this world who claim to be Christians and yet sadly aren't reading their Bible at all. If God's Holy Spirit lives in your heart today, doesn't it make sense that there should be a hunger inside of you to read His Word? Not only to help your relationship grow with Him, but to know how you should live. I've heard it said by some, they don't need a Bible. All they need is Jesus. That's a bit like saying, I don't need a heartbeat. All I need is air to breathe. If there is a hunger for God and His Word, you, if there is no hunger for God and His Word, you may need to really examine your heart to find out why. As one commentator spelled out, God's Word is like oxygen for a Christian's heart. So make sure you're breathing it in. We must not forget a verse that probably all of us have memorized. 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished, or equipped unto all good works. Are you reading your Bible? It's so important. And I'm going to give you a few thoughts why you should read it. First, the Word of God is totally infallible. There's no error. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. There's absolutely no other book you can pick up that could be said. It's infallible. Second, the Word of God is totally complete. It doesn't need any new chapters, any new verses. It's all right here. Many cults have their own books or commentaries, but not with God's Word. It's absolutely complete. Thirdly, the Word of God is totally authoritative. Psalms 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your Word is settled in heaven. The Word of God is the only source for absolute divine authority. Fourthly, the Word of God is totally sufficient for all our needs. I thought, you know, there are thousands, there may be millions of books written about marriage. How to have a good marriage. What you need to do. And yet, the Word of God is everything you need to have a biblical marriage. It's all right in here. Lastly, the Word of God will totally accomplish what it promises. Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goeth forth my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but shall accomplish that which I please, and shall, shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. I really challenge you today, if you're not in God's word, you really need to question your faith. Last section, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. I call this a promise of reconciliation. From Moses, Malachi now turns to Elijah the prophet. 
It says he will return before the coming of the dreadful day of the Lord. If Moses is the figure who represents the law, the figure who represents the prophets is Elijah. You may remember when Christ was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, when his clothes became dazzling white, the two people who appeared with him were Moses and Elijah in Matthew 17. The question here is, who is this final prophet who comes to warn of the final judgment? Who is this Elijah? Commentators are all over the board on this. Some say it is Elijah himself that will come again. For if you recall, Elijah, like Enoch, never died a physical death. Supporters of Elijah himself returning using they use Revelation 11.3, where there is a description of two individuals, or witnesses they're called, who will help accomplish God's work during the tribulation. Now nowhere does the Bible specify these two witnesses by name. Although people throughout the years have speculated it will be Enoch and Elijah. Other scholars, including my own Bible commentary, said it's John the Baptist, who returned, referring to Luke 117, where it speaks of John the Baptist and says, And he shall go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Still other commentators argue it will be Christ himself who will precede the wrath of judgment with a call of mercy. To tell you the truth, I don't really know who it will be. But suffice it to say this last messenger will be one who comes in the spirit and the power of the Lord. And his mission will be a call of reconciliation to God in order to be spared from being smited with a curse. Curse is a very strong word. If you look it up in the Hebrew, and I think in some of your translations, the word suggests complete annihilation. Bluntly speaking, the ultimatum about God's judgment is very simple. Repent or perish. That's a choice. Malachi concludes in verse 6 that reconciliation only takes place when hearts are changed. And even more specifically, the hearts of the fathers toward their children and the hearts of children toward their fathers. It's interesting to me that he uses that analogy. And yet, sadly, we're living in a time when many fathers' hearts are estranged from their children. Even this week, um, I had a co-worker in my office who was really grieving because his son, who apparently made a profession years ago, got married, had a child, a son, and uh, now the father and the son aren't talking at all. Zero. There's no communication. Recently I spoke about fathers, if you remember. And as I thought through this, I thought of three examples of how a child's heart can be turned away from their fathers and why there needs to be reconciliation. First, fathers, a child's heart can be turned away from you simply by ignoring your children. By being so swallowed up in your work that you literally have no time for them. And if this happens, you can rest assured your children will know it and 
as Ephesians 6 talks about fathers provoking their children to wrath, this is one area that, that can really be provoked. When you're no longer or never around. Personally, I would tell you that when I first embarked on my career, um, I worked gobs of hours. Gobs of hours. And then we had children, and I was gone more than I was ever at home. But then, it's interesting what? I was on an airplane, had the magazine, and there was a little sales deal in there about mouse pads. So I ordered this mouse pad. This was 30 years ago. It's titled Priorities, as a son in the picture. It says, a hundred years from now, it will not matter what my bank account was, what sort of house I lived in, or the kind of car I drove. But the world may be a different place or different because I was important in the life of my children. That really changed my life. And I just want to encourage you fathers, don't ignore your children. Secondly, a father's heart can be turned away from you by never sharing a word of affirmation, but instead being constantly critical and unkind. Even this week, I heard <clears throat> a story of a child asking his father, Daddy, why can't I do that? Simple question. And then the father responds angrily, Because I said so! That's not the right answer. That doesn't mean anything. I mean, you've got to explain your heart so your child understands. Proverbs 16, 24, Pleasant words are sweet to the soul and health to the bones, and they will be to your children. Lastly, a father's heart can be turned away by not keeping your promises. God keeps his promises as we talked earlier. But do you? As I said at the beginning, many are guilty at one time or another not keeping promise, promises. But such unkept promises to our children can be devastating in our relationships. If you've never done this, fathers, I'd encourage you to, I'd encourage you to sit down one-on-one -on -one with each of your children and ask them, have I ever made a promise to you and not kept it? It might be a real, real eye-opener. So as I conclude this message in the book of Malachi, I'll ask one final question. God has promised that a day of judgment is coming, which will be nothing like we've ever seen before. It could even come within the next hour. Your only hope of avoiding this destruction is repenting of your sin and placing your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. The question simply is, have you done that? Have you done that? I'll leave you these words. Repent or perish. Which will it be? So let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy scriptures. Thank you for the convicting power that they hold. Thank you, Lord, for 
just the, uh, the whole aspect of the final judgment. Lord, I know there are people in this room that do not know you, that do not have a personal relationship with you. Put it off. Don't care. Lord, I pray that they would see their need for Christ. They would desire to not perish, but to have everlasting life. So I just pray, help us all continue to read your word and be in it and know how we should live. I just pray this in Christ's name. Amen.